Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. And what is uniquely different, I think, in this year, knowing that that energy would expend itself often faster than a solution was available, then they accepted that that energy would just pass on through and they never actually addressed the problems. One of the uh, leaders of the investigations unit at the police department was telling me that 180 of the 476 retail pharmacies in, 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 in Philadelphia were broken into. And it, it was their assessment that these um, attacks were strategically planned. Modern technology blessedly allows for um, being able to just kind of get the cut of somebody's jib or get enough of a sense of them that you could say, okay, they can prospectively be successful in this industry or they're, you know, they're just not a candidate that, that's going to do well for what we do. But what my role is, is to be able to sit between those engineers, the CTO, and then your chief legal officer, your HR officer, your facilities officer, and be able to articulate the needs based against the new threat landscape. All that and more on this month's edition of Security Management Highlights. Michael Center is a regional security advisor for the United Nations Department of Safety and Security based in Brussels, Belgium. He is chair of the ASIS Professional Development Council and chair for the Global Terrorism, Political Instability, and International Crime Council. Michael Center, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate you having me on today. Today, we're going to talk about mass protests, civil unrest, what causes them, and most importantly, how to view all this in the proper context. That's really the key here. Before we get started, let's distinguish a mass protest from civil unrest. I think they're two different things. Am I right about that? Uh, it, it's quite a confusing topic. And I think one differentiation is, you know, some people will label any form of protest as a means of civil unrest or or action against the state, but any form of peaceful protest, uh, I would argue, is is should not necessarily be generically labeled as civil unrest. Uh, it would be unrest when they begin to potentially target facilities or begin doing actual actual damage. Very fair points. And let's try to let's try to identify some of the drivers behind this because it's not just COVID nineteen. It, it there's all kinds of things going on in the world besides that, right? Uh, there absolutely are. In fact, pick pick the continent and you will find significant cases of, of mass protest, not just this year. Um, there was certainly a significant increase of at least 25 percent in 2019. But in all sincerity, this has been growing since 2008. So we should also distinguish when we start seeing large protests in the streets, they don't just start overnight. There are issues that build up to that. So I would say COVID itself is an extension in some countries, in a growing number of countries, of mass protests. But underneath the surface, you're really dealing with bad governance, systemic corruption, environmental issues in certain countries. Without a doubt, there are there are certain conspiracy theories that are driving protest in some countries. The list is, is phenomenal. But I would argue that underneath the surface, uh, most of them deal in either bad governance or bad economics. So let's talk about economics. Uh, a downturn in economics has historically been a, a source of civil unrest, protesting. Well, you know, which is a good reason, right? If you know, if your government's not uh, improving your quality of life, you have a right to protest, and you should. The broader global economic system has still not completely recovered from the 2008 downturn. 
So you've had a number of uh, lost jobs globally and a, and a downturn in economic ability, which has compounded annually leading up to this year. And then when you have a host of governments uh, who were forced for public health reasons to shut down that economy further, they were doing that on an already very fragile system. Uh, now, different countries reacted in, in clearly different ways to that shutdown, but all countries are now seeing, well, I say all countries, but a very large number of countries are now seeing more pushback. The, the longer the lockdowns happen, the harder it is for people to get to work, the harder it is to get their kids to, uh, to school, therefore they can't go to work, and you just got a large number of lost jobs. So I don't know that one necessarily drove the other as it did compound on top of each other. It seems we're accepting the riots and the, and the mass demonstrations and civil unrest instead of sitting down with people and saying, hey, let's fix the problem. I don't know that we're accepting them per se. Ex I, I, I might say that, uh, well, one, I would agree with um, the Center for Strategic International Studies that we are, in fact, in an era of mass protest. I don't think a lot of people necessarily saw how it was growing because, again, it takes quite a while to lead up to it. But I think we've become accustomed to believing there are quick solutions to all problems when there really aren't. What is, I do believe, different now is that because we've had a few issues, and then if, if we go back, for example, I'll just try to use one from the U.S. of uh, Ferguson, Missouri, you know, you had a lot of, of protesters but the but the length of that protest did not necessarily sustain itself. And what is uniquely different, I think, in this year is the the intention, the energy and the ability to sustain the protests for a much longer period of time. And I think for some decision makers, and this, again, goes across many countries, Knowing that that energy would expend itself often faster than a solution was available, then they accepted that that energy would just pass on through and they never actually addressed the problems. Today's protesters, I think, are more globally linked. They share more information. They share both sympathy and empathy for each other's cause, and that helps generate more energy and, and connection amongst them. So the more we fail to address the underlying problems, the more we're just simply going to have protest. Now, I will differentiate, just to say that too, I will differentiate between riots and protest. And I think we should set riots to a, a different, a, a wee bit different topic. It's difficult to address the concerns of rioters per se, but we, we fundamentally fail to address too often the underlying causes. And since we treat symptoms, We've accepted that those symptoms would burn out. Uh, we would we would like it like taking Tylenol for a fever. It'll take the headache away, but it doesn't treat the virus. And now we're realizing, I think now the virus is stronger in this context. So we need to come up with a better treatment. The way the issue is presented in the in the media, and I don't want to get too involved in as as many of others might say of of. Um, of, of media culpability in this, but a story hits, you know, riots uh, or, or large protests uh, started last night in country X. And the way that will come across in the media is that they just suddenly happened out of nowhere. 
which they didn't. Uh, the issues leading up to that happened months, if not years, building up on that. So if the protests themselves don't suddenly start overnight, they built up, then clearly addressing those concerns also is not going to be immediate. Um, but I think, I think from a global perspective, meaning multiple countries, the amount of time that decision makers uh, took to avoid the issue in the first place just makes addressing those issues that much harder. In many ways, they're just not equipped. To, they, they don't know what to do. What can we expect to grow in the next five or six years? I think using your 2008 connection to the economy, I think we're at the start of a new economic downturn. We have people that are out of work. They have balloon payments due for their mortgages and rent. People uh, can't get reemployed or their employment's changing. And I could see that impacting us one or two years from now in much more severe way than what's happening right now. I would agree. Uh, I know because, again, the, the, the media cycle, especially with, um, you know, and it's not just in the U.S. There are political campaigns going on in multiple countries. We've got election issues. We've got uh, internal displacement uh, issues of people moving from rural areas into population centers and back out again because of the need for jobs. There is a whole host of issues that are growing and many people, especially a group of protesters, you know, they want their solution and they want it now. This is going to, I believe, compound over the next three to five years. So I, I, I will argue that we will see a, a continued era or continuance of, of this mass protest. And, you know, I, I worked for a man uh, in, in, in Haiti once, Juan Gabriel Valdez, and protesters used to ask, you know, what are, what are you doing for, for the country? Uh, and, and he had a, a nice phrase of coming back and saying, well, what are you going to do for the country? You know, there, there are a lot of problems, and, and certainly people have legitimate concerns with what their governments are doing. At the same time, I think we all need to accept that we're in this ship together, and if we're not all working to make things better, then we're just going to keep compounding it. Uh, the other thing I think you're going to see over the next uh, uh, one to three years without trying to go beyond that is, you know, the level of rhetoric no matter what side of any political aisle you sit on is just getting so out of control and and heated that there's no way for parties to sit down and talk and find out what can we what what can both sides or multiple sides accept where's the middle ground and as long as we can't find any middle ground then the issues are going to just continue to grow well said my friend michael center speaking on civil unrest and mass protests michael the center it's always where the solution lies. Thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. Thanks, Chuck. I very much appreciate it. Take care. Mark Jufri, CPP CFE, is a director at Hillard Hines, a Jensen News company where he supports clients in investigations, security, and law enforcement consulting. Mark has experienced in regulatory oversight, inspection, and investigation of manufacturers and distributors of controlled substances. He has taught extensively on narcotics and control programs and has testified as an expert witness. Mark Jufri, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Good to hear from you again. Thanks. Great to be here, Chuck. Today, we're going to talk about drug diversion temptations rising out of COVID-19. Healthcare facilities, other institutions, they're faced with this temptation and rise in loss prevention, which is 
a direct result of people not having drug diversion programs, right? Very interesting. Tell us about what's going on. Yeah, Chuck. So there's a lot happening that's making drug diversion loss prevention a higher priority in the healthcare system than it ever has been before. Uh, the first is really an increased regulatory and legal risks. Um, we're at a point, an incredible point right now, where there's tremendous pressure on controlling uh, controlled substances. Uh, currently, there's pending uh, litigation in uh, U.S. District Court in the Northern District of Illinois, where over 900 states, local and tribal governments uh, are suing a number of distributors of opiate pain medications, seeking damages for the, the impact on the opiate epidemic. And the, the suit is expected, uh, analysts say that they expect a settlement could exceed $1 billion. Um, just last year, in August of last year, a judge in Oklahoma ruled that the drug maker Johnson & Johnson deceptively marketed painkillers. And uh, in, in that uh, uh, finding, uh, the, the company was ordered to pay $572 million. So there's really a lot of increased regulatory and legal risk. But secondly, the opiate epidemic itself is, is, is also... Um, it's it's maybe worse than it ever was uh, pre-COVID. Uh, preliminary analysis by the White House Office of the National Drug Control Policy shows an 11.4% increase year over year in opiate overdose fatalities for the first four months of 2020. And the American Medical Association has now reported that 30 states um, are saying that they're seeing an increase in overdose deaths uh, since COVID struck. Where I'm at in Chicago, in Cook County, Illinois, suspected or confirmed overdose deaths uh, from opioids doubled doubled in the first five months of 2020. Um, so that's putting more and more pressure on, uh, on controlled opioid substance and pain medications. But thirdly, there's an evolving drug abuse landscape. Um, we've been talking primarily about the depressants and the opioid epidemic, but abuse of stimulants has really taken off as well. Um, the United States law enforcement is reporting that a big increase um, in, in uh, seizures of methamphetamine, for example, which is a stimulant at the U.S. border with Mexico. Uh, the DEA reported uh, across the United States that meth purity uh, uh, has increased uh, and the price has decreased. Both are indicators of increased supply. The Centers for Disease Control has reported an increase in meth overdoses. So we, we've got uh, a whole bunch of things that are in the mix. And, and uh, specific to COVID, we also see stressors on the system as well. First of those is increased personal stress and healthcare personnel. You know, uh, some studies show as many as 10 to 15% of healthcare workers abuse uh, um, uh, substances, pharmaceutical substances in particular. Healthcare workers are under more stress than they've ever been on before, both because of the risk of catching COVID and taking it home to their loved ones, but also being the persons in the ICUs are often uh, the only people um, at the bedside of people who are passing away from COVID-19. Tremendous stress. Um, but secondly, also, COVID has disrupted drug treatment programs and facilities. Uh, they've moved to a lot of web-based remote counseling, which is not ideal for drug treatment. Uh, drug addiction is a disease of isolation. And now through social distancing and, and quarantining, we're isolating people. Methadone clinics, which used to dispense daily doses of medicine to those who are uh, addicted to uh, opioids, um, had a problem with social distancing. Some of them shut down. The restrictions uh, were lessened so that now a methadone clinic is authorized to disperse 25, a 25 day dosage uh, of methadone for uh, those who are being treated to self-administer methadone at home, um, which increases the risk of, of relapse 
Um, so, and people who struggle with drug dependency, they're facing what layoffs, unemployment, eviction, social isolation, stressors, just like everyone is, but it makes the risk of relapse for them much greater. Uh, at the same time, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration back in April increased quotas for manufacturing and importation of controlled substances. And we're talking about fentanyl, morphine, and codeine. At a time we were trying to restrict the amount of these uh, controlled substances in the system, we're now increasing them so that there'll be enough to treat people on ventilators who need these medications as well. And there's also been an ease of access to controlled substances for healthcare professionals through telemedicine. Um, I just had a, a checkup with my doctor two weeks ago, and it was all on Zoom. Um, so there may be increased risks of uh, prescriptions being given without checking uh, uh, the vital statistics like we did traditionally. So all those factors are playing and, and, and pressing pressures onto the, uh, the uh, diversion control programs. And there are three high-risk areas um, that security professionals uh, are, are focusing on. Um, one of the big high-risk areas uh, is brick-and-mortar pharmacies. Um, and there's three areas within brick and mortar pharmacies. First of those is pharmacy technicians. You know, in Murder Mysteries, uh, we have the saying, the butler did it. Um, in, in any retail pharmacy practice, the same holds true for controlled substances uh, with pharmacy technicians. They're the persons who have access. Uh, they have uh, access to the controlled substances. And when um, controlled substances are, are stolen, um, or inventories don't match up. It's, it's frequently um, it's frequently the pharmacy technician who's the person who's involved in it. So, so that's a high risk to be looking at. Secondly is returns. Um, in any pharmacy, there are, there are medications that are expired or the manufacturer the, uh, of the pharmaceutical uh, recalls them for whatever reason. So they're pending transfer or destruction. And if the proper controls are not in place, these substances often disappear and they find themselves into the black market and they get abused. So it's extremely important um, to have strict inventory controls that these are kept in a secure locker. Um, and we always uh, advise the practice of the rule of two um, so that um, every single documented interaction with the controlled substances is done with two people. Likewise, if they're being destroyed, it's witnessed by two people and it just prevents the temptation of, of stealing. And the third big one is, um, records and IT security. You know, this isn't necessarily specific to COVID, but uh, the, after the George Floyd riots in May and June of this year, um, brick and mortar pharmacies nationwide were targeted by looters who carried out large quantities of prescription drugs. And many of these were drugs that uh, have a high risk of abuse. And this was both independent pharmacies and the large change that were impacted. Their narcotic safes were broken, the drugs um, that were stolen. Many of these were drugs that were used to manage abuse, uh, like Suboxone, which is a low-grade uh, opioid that um, is used to treat opioid addiction, which are also drugs that can be abused. But also uh, stimulants were being stolen, uh, uh, stimulants such as Adderall. Um, I want to use the example of Philadelphia, where uh, uh, one of the uh, leaders of the investigations unit at the police department was telling me that 180 of the 476 retail pharmacies in, 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 in Philadelphia were broken into. And it, it was their assessment that these um, attacks were strategically planned. Um, not only were the drugs stolen, in many instances, the thieves hauled off the computer systems that the pharmacists used to maintain inventory controls and to make their audits. And, and without those, those, those audits, there's no way for the pharmacist to know 
what with certainty was stolen and what with certainty is missing. Um, so that third area is cybersecurity, secure cloud storage, secure record keeping system, absolutely fundamental. You know, when pharmacies lose inventory, if they can't account for that inventory, they're at risk of losing their DEA registrations, which authorizes them to dispense controlled substances. And they're required the day of the loss um, under 21 CFR 1301, the Code of Federal Regulations, to report um, uh, to DEA in writing um, those losses and to follow up with a detailed um, description of what was lost. And without having uh, audit capability, it's almost impossible to do that. The second high-risk area is hospital pharmacies. Um, they say, face many of the same risks as the retail brick-and-mortar pharmacies, but with two additional risks. The biggest amongst them is automatic dispensing machines, or ADMs. ADMs are the medical equivalent of ATMs, <laughs> and they really should be treated just like ATMs. Um, so these are machines that will contain dosage units of uh, uh, pain medications and medications that have a high risk of, uh, of abuse. The access uh, and the policies should be updated and the usages from these machines, the dispensing from these machines should be reviewed at least weekly uh, by supervisory personnel. Uh, and then the second one is use of liquid drugs and syringes. These are used daily uh, in hospitals. Um, they're they're critical. I mean, oftentimes these are someone in a severe accident or or with tremendous injury um, will be given a, a pain medication through a syringe to instantly enter their drug system. They're very powerful opioids frequently, and it's important that the hospital uh, have account for these at all times and, and that they're kept secure before they're used and after they're used. Again, um, this is where the best practice is using the rule of two, particularly after one has been used to account for them. And then the third uh, risk area is medical clinics. They Medical clinics that generally don't store drugs have a lower risk, but there's two big exceptions. One is access to the, the physician or the medical provider's paper or electronic prescription pad. So employees will, will often fraudulently prepare a paper prescription without the doctor's knowledge or telephone in a prescription without the doctor's knowledge, or uh, if they can access uh, the doctor's electronic prescription pad, they'll fraudulently electronically file a prescription. So here, security is absolutely paramount in securing uh, if it's a paper prescription pad that should be locked at all times, that the physician should never share or his staff uh, access to electronic passwords for prescriptions. And more importantly than both of those, they should returnly, uh, re routinely review um, their prescribing history just to make sure nobody's uh, pulling something behind their back. A couple other areas that, that are key in terms of uh, diversion uh, uh, programs are practices that we can use to mitigate the risk. Uh, one is is that's critically important is use of uh, artificial intelligence. That's a, a really a partner now in diversion control, uh, and and uh, a, AI can use logarithms to help identify higher risk medications, higher risk dispensing patterns amongst healthcare personnel to flag those for follow-up by security personnel. And probably more importantly than anything is audit, 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 audit. Uh, audit is the backbone of uh, diversion control programs. Um, it, it's critical um, and it's used to evaluate how well diversion managers are monitoring and surveilling uh, the diversion program, but it also uh, helps identify areas for improvement and areas for follow-up. Mark Jufri, Hillard Hines, a Jensen Hughes company. Mark, thanks for coming on Security Management Highlights. It's always great to speak with you. Thank you, Chuck. Chris Stewart is Vice President of Top Guard Security. Employed in the security industry since 1988, 
He has served on several ASIS councils and the Commonwealth of Virginia's Private Security Services Advisory Board and is the past president of the Virginia Security Association. Chris, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Oh, thank you, sir. Appreciate you having Today, we're going to talk about virtual vetting, remote hiring in the wake of COVID-19. You know, this really, for the guard business, stands the whole hiring process on its head because I was in the guard business a long time. And, you know, part of my hiring process was making sure you showed up at the office on time, that you could fill out an application, that you did it efficiently. I could see how you presented yourself. All that physical hiring was part of the screening process, really. Uh, it, it said a lot about you before you got to my desk for an interview, and now we can't do that. Tell us what some of these challenges are and, and how the industry is addressing them. Well, you are unquestionably right. Um, the utilization of the receptionist or the person who was grabbing, and it almost seems silly to say in 2020, but you know, grabbing the clipboard, putting the, the proper pieces of paper on it, along with a big blue ballpoint pen. I mean, that, anybody who has been in this industry for long enough, that was part of the hiring process. And, and meanwhile, you were kind of uh, visually measuring them for uniforms, right? In your head, like, okay, you know, about an extra large. Um, as you've mentioned, that has just, it is proverbially turned on the dime. It, it has gone from how do you get people in and utilize that time for familiarization to how do we absolutely positively place all parties, both the, the security firm staff and the prospective uh, interviewee and applicant, and how do we make everyone as safe as humanly possible? And that that's really at the, at the bottom um, of every kind of flow chart is absolutely positively safety. Well, I mean, I knew, for example, that I could handle the uniform thing because when you came into the office, we wrote your sizes on a piece of paper. I mailed that to the uniform company and they mailed the uniforms to the guard. So there's some components of that hiring process that we can use today to do some separations. But don't we have to physically sit down and size somebody up? I don't think it's the same as doing a virtual interview. Am I wrong? Well, the feedback that we've gotten from our staffing specialists who, again, went from, a, let's say, a Tuesday with one methodology and, in effect, were, were cranking uh, full speed by Wednesday with an entirely new uh, interview process is that uh, they feel pretty comfortable that the idiosyncrasies of one's personality and one's temperament, um, the attentiveness or inattentiveness, that it has a tendency to shine through. I, I couldn't really find in my questioning of them an area where they thought, nope, we just we can't. Now, now, they did say, you know, we, we've read articles that 60% of people have a tendency to conduct their uh, digital interviews or digital Zoom meetings uh, in pajamas and bunny slippers. They said, you know, can't vouch for that. <laughs> so the proverbial with the you know the holes in the knees could be the case with flip-flops but they said otherwise they really just felt that modern technology blessedly allows for um, being able to just kind of get the cut of somebody's jib or get enough of a sense of them that you could say okay they can prospectively be successful in this industry or they're you know they're just not a candidate that that's going to do well for what we do well, I'm glad to hear that. That's a, a better candidate, isn't it? Because they can use technology. Our modern day clients need a guard to have some technical skills. You're spot on with the fact that someone who can't manage to get on a Zoom meeting is going to have an issue if they have the slightest glitch 
with one of the reporting systems because you know, I mentioned that old DTEX clock, uh, the Navy style. Well, gosh, in this day and age, well, you know, there may be a few of those around the country still in place. The movement towards and the adoption of the electronic um, patrol reporting and incident reporting, I mean, that, that's where technology is. That's where the clients that people want to have, that, that's what they're looking for. It's highly problematic. If you, if you can't swing that part of it, then that, that is sending all kinds of signals to a human resource professional that um, you know, there are gonna be severe speed bumps on this path. Now, with the onset of COVID, we're having to inject, immediately inject, all new types of training social distancing, mask, all that kind of stuff. How much of that is uh, is challenging? In one way, I think it might be easier because, boom, we're in a virtual world and we can deliver this material immediately to hundreds of people simultaneously. So that might be a good thing. I would argue that there are two key pieces of training that when you add it to the flexibility of modern technology, really make a difference. Well, the first of the two differences is you can now control the pace with which a video is watched. There, in other words, you can have a 27-minute COVID um, informational video, OSHA, what the current standards are, and a person has to watch it. They can't fast forward. Um, you know, a lot of times when that technology was pretty new, you, a person could move their finger all the way over to the right and they had figured out how to put video, you know, on phones and online, but they hadn't figured out how to kind of control the pace with which you had to watch it. Um, the, the second piece that, uh, that really strengthens the ability to convey this information um, at, at a distance is the ability to add embedded quizzes that either don't let you go past or when they're summarizing it at the end, allow a manager to see that, okay, someone managed to watch this video, but flunk the quiz. And much like earlier when you said, wow, if you can't get on a Zoom call successfully for your interview, the arrows aren't pointed in the right direction. Um, if you can watch material as it's historically presented to security officers and that, that kind of average high school graduate um, educational level, if you can watch that material, take a quiz on the very subject that you just watched and not either have paid close enough attention or retained it successfully, you're not going to do well in this industry. I mean, those are, you're, you know, you know where you're going to end up in front of a human resource person going through progressive discipline because you're, you're making it up as you go along. You're winging it. I think I'm hearing something very positive come out of something negative. Is that, is that how you're feeling about this? The virtual, the virtual switch seems to be upgrading the guard business to the digital world. I couldn't agree more. The timing is what's key. Imagine if this very same circumstance had occurred in 1985 or 1995 or 2005 or even you know 10 years ago. It just they've been much more difficult. It's just it's a remarkable circumstance that the capability is there and also let's be very frank virtually every human being on the planet has a cellular telephone it's a piece of technology that individuals have chosen to have with them that have allowed these types of things um, to be much more streamlined than they would be chris stewart vice president of top guide security chris thanks for coming on security management highlights very positive and up uplifting information uh thanks for sharing oh but of course have a blessed day and thank you kindly for having me Neil M. Parker is the Business Security Officer of the Employee Digital Experience for MasterCard, 
and a member of the ASIS Young Professionals Community. Neil Parker, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. No, Chuck, thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to kind of share my knowledge and I guess my experiences within the corporate industry when it comes to the convergence of uh, physical and cybersecurity. Yeah, it's really a fascinating conversation. Only about 25% of companies have really bought into this convergence and, and wholeheartedly adopted it, which is a super low number. I mean, it's 2020, right? Do you think this would have been going on for about 10 or 15 years? Of course, MasterCard has been in the convergence space for a long, long time, leading the way in this. Do you have any insight into why this process is is really so slow for everybody to, to uh, take up? Investment. An investment is, isn't always very easy to justify. I actually remember when I'm, I'm trying to think back two years. I think at, at one point we were having this conversation with how do you go after funding? How do you justify the value add of what you're trying to sell to your financial department over business driving or revenue driving initiatives within an organization? And I always try to tell everyone like, you have to tell the story like it is a business and you have to have corporate security seen as a business enabler. Once you kind of prove your value add as a business enabler and speed to market and all those buzzwords, that's how you're truly going to get the C-suite buy in and understand the risk. And you'll also be able to tell the story of the risks associated if we don't do the right, if we don't go on this journey. We often talk about annual loss expectancy and different things like that. Well, if you don't really put those calculations in front of your C-suite, that, that's what a product guy does. A product guy goes in and says, you give me this amount of money, this is your return on investment. Well, security needs to flip that on its head and go the other way saying, we've got all these doors open. If we don't close them, it could cost our company X, Y, Z in the future. And I don't think you have to look far across many third, fourth pages of many news articles to often see where a company has come up foul to their own security controls because of not providing enough respect and due diligence to the real threats companies are facing. What is MassCard doing on the training level? Because this is where you bring the security awareness, right? I mean, if you want to take the physical security guy like yourself and get them interested, got to have some training. And, and that, I think, is the most effective part of the education. Yeah, most definitely. And again, not every organization will have the same level of access to the same level of resources. But for ourselves, we were incredibly lucky to partner with an organization. And we actually put the emphasis on managers to develop their people. I think it's too easy when when you're comfortable in your job and you know what you're reading about or know what you're learning, life is easy. When you're trying to learn something new, it can become incredibly difficult. And that was really where we kind of led the way in the CISSP, which by no means is a fundamental certification in the cybersecurity space, but we've really led the way by two, three, four months, six month workshops to develop our people. And even up to most recently over the last few years, we've certified over another 60 CISSP professionals within our employees that have got there because we want people, and that's also understanding to take a step back that qualifications like the CISSP, it's not just in the cyberspace. It's in risk management, it's in risk operations, it's crisis management, business continuity, that in reality always sat on the physical side of the house. So this convergence, it's not always physical going to cyber. It's also people in the cyberspace that want to pr provide themselves with growth opportunity in the leadership space that actually need to transition some of their knowledge across into the physical space. 
I come from the military. I was a radio operator in the military. And during my military career, I did everything to avoid going down a technical path. I was the guy that I wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to be running around with a radio on my back. And when I decided my time was up in the military and I actually joined MasterCard as an organization, I was heavily focused in the physical space. I led physical security for international markets. And it was actually my chief security officer that sat me down and said, look, you have gone as far as you can in this company and you are probably not even halfway through your career unless you're willing to diversify your skill sets and diversify your knowledge. And He sat me down and he said, look, you understand what a perimeter does on a facility site. It's the same as a firewall. You understand what your guard force is doing. It's the same as your vulnerability management. He said, you understand the demilitarized zone in the physical space. It's exactly the same in the cyberspace. It's that space between the public and your secure environment. And it was little pushes by leadership that kind of got me to open my mind and suddenly go, this isn't that different. It's not all ones and zeros. It's really understanding the articulation of what security really is. And it's stopping the bad guys from getting to the good guys. Tell me how the physical side of the security business you know, and credit cards and MasterCard has has converged. What's their role in this convergence? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. And whilst I won't fully divulge like BankNet, SmartNet, and all the different things that we partner with the banks on, not forgetting that MasterCard is a technology company at the end of the day. We, like, we facilitate the transactions between banks and acquirers and back to bank, back to further banks. But it's very much when we talk about the convergence of physical and cyber, you're exactly right. It's the same in the payment space. I actually remember the head of fraud when I was based in Dubai for five years for MasterCard. His focus was cash point theft. Like that that was the big risk. It was skimming machines that sat on the front of cash machines in um, evolving markets, most likely, or in big cities where they wouldn't be detected for a period of time. But in what we kind of class as the new norm, yeah, it, it's all it's all in the digital space now. It, it is so much easier by moving a couple of decimal points or gaining access to pavement environments. To you don't need to do any phys- anything physical anymore, and that's the reality of the challenges we're facing now. How is physical security's role merged into helping the cyber guys with that? Because it's one thing to find the guy in your firewall. It's a whole other thing to prosecute him, stop him from doing it in the future. Because in the end, cybersecurity is about people doing things, right? Yeah, and I think that's an incredible challenge that many industries across the technology space are facing at the moment. Our CSI organization, which we kind of see us see ourselves on the leading edge, But at the same time, we face the challenge that when we are working with different jurisdictions and we are looking to prosecute, we are looking to truly explain what's happened when some element of data breach in the financial space has taken place. It's incredibly hard to do because you're dealing with judges, law enforcement and so forth that don't have that same level of expertise to truly be able to articulate and explain how it's happened when we talk about digital forensics and handling of information. It's yeah, it's a it's a challenge I think all big companies in the technical space are now facing. But again, it's something we all have to adapt to as the new norm. Do you find that you translate the vernacular of of the digital cybersecurity world into real life terms? Yeah, very much so. And I actually think when you look at that is something that in the physical space, I think many people, young and old in the industry, they undersell themselves on 
really the DQ of what they offer an organization. So it's not about the EQ or the IQ. It's really how you conduct yourself and the culture you bring to an organization. Because in my role as a business security officer for employee digital experience, I, I am not the lead security architect or the security engineer involved in the new design of our corporate network. But what my role is, is to be able to sit between those engineers, the CTO, and then your chief legal officer, your HR officer, your facilities officer, and be able to articulate the needs based against the new threat landscape so that we can find a common ground and common understanding because, yeah, in the world we operate in now, understanding that fundamental technical, whilst you must have a true understanding of the fundamentals, you're not going to be that subject matter expert because there is just so much out there nowadays. How did the physical security people embrace this? Were they excited about, about merging or was there a little reluctance? I think because of MasterCard led the way and we really started this journey, I want to say 10, 15 years ago, but really kicked it into hyperdrive 10 years ago. I think there was a level of excitement. There was obviously you had a CISO sat one side of the wall reporting to the chief technology officer. You had the chief security officer reporting to the CEO. And I, I think when, when we really thought about it and we realized we're all going to come under that operations and technology umbrella, it created more opportunity for people rather than resistance. So therefore, yes, there was a level of embrace. Yes, there were people that suddenly went, I had a particular career path lined out here and that whole hierarchical tree's just gone out the window. But I think once people kind of got insight into both worlds, like our SOC guys that were monitoring alarm systems on buildings, were now monitoring billions of transactions on a weekly basis. Like that was incredibly exciting things. There was so much gained over the very little that was kind of removed, if you could say so. Yeah, it, it was probably one of the most exciting journeys we have been on over the last seven to 10 years at MasterCard. Neil Parker, thanks so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Excellent, excellent information and excellent insight. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure today.